If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> It was clear he was engaging in battles that they were almost suicidal in nature. He went into battles where he executed prisoners, ordered no prisoners to be taken. That was Scott Anderson discussing Lawrence of Arabia. They were in this kind of hermetically sealed little world that their mother controlled very closely. And they knew there was this wonderful world outside. And that was Helen Rappaport talking about the lives of the four Romanov Grand Duchesses. and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It is available in all good news agents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for the latest subscription offers. And if you have a digital device, we have editions available for the iPad, iPhone Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. And for details of these, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. Our first guest this week is Scott Anderson. Scott is a veteran war correspondent who has reported from conflicts around the globe. He is also a successful author, whose latest book is a biography of T. Lawrence, better known, of course, as Lawrence of Arabia. On a recent visit to Bristol, Scott popped into our studios to share his thoughts about this enigmatic British hero. For listeners out there, 
if there are some who've never heard of Lawrence of Arabia, could you just briefly explain who he was and why is he so important? Yeah, his name was Thomas Edward Lawrence, better known as T.E. Lawrence, and he was a, a junior British officer. Uh, he was 28 years old in 1916 when the Arab Revolt started in what was modern-day Saudi Arabia. And Lawrence went over as a, initially just as a, virtually on a sightseeing trip. And he ended up becoming the chief liaison officer between the, the British forces who were based in Egypt and Cairo and the Arab rebel forces in Arabia. And he spent the next two years till, until the end of the war uh, working with the Arab tribes, uniting the Arab tribes to fight for the... the Arab Revolt, and was really the primary battlefield commander of of the Arab rebels in the march to Damascus in Syria. So this is during the First World War. That's right. And the Arab Revolt would, that wasn't that was against the Ottoman Empire. Is that right? That's right. the The Ottoman Turks came in, into the war. They, they were allied with Germany, so they, they were opposed to Britain and France. Uh, and Britain led the Allied war effort in the Middle East, and primarily from. British controlled Egypt. So the revolt for the first two years of the war, there were a lot of soundings back and forth with the Arabs, especially King Hussein in it's called the Hejaz, which is in central modern-day Saudi Arabia, to get the Arabs to, to rebel against the Turks. And after really very extravagant promises from the British of sweeping Arab independence, King Hussein led his forces into rebellion against the Turks. So... Why do you think Lawrence felt this sort of attachment to the Arab people that he wanted to then go and become a leader for them? What was it about about them that, that made him want to do that? Well, prior to the war, he was an Oxford scholar, and, and um, he had gone out to, to northern Syria. to a uh, He had worked on an archaeological site at this place, this right on the, the modern border of Turkey and, and Syria, and he, and he spent most of five years there. And he, he really came to, well, both to love the Arab culture, but also to, to have a real understanding of how it worked. And uh, even more than an archaeologist, he, he, was, he was almost more of a cultural anthropologist, and he really studied uh, the, the clan and tribal structure of, of Arab society, which it was very important to him when he got to Arabia, where the, those clan and tribal structures were just that much, because it's that much more conservative uh, in Arabia than in Syria. These affiliations and feuds and vendettas um, were even more uh, pronounced in Arabia. So he was uniquely suited to, to this role of trying to unite a lot of the, the Bedouin tribes, the Arab tribes. He was one of those people who just, I think, had this kind of instant affinity for a foreign culture. And for him, it was it was the Arab culture. And so this period went on to become a hugely important um, few years in the what would be the formation of the modern Middle East. That's right. What did Lawrence himself want want to happen there? What was his vision for the Middle East? Well, as I said, the, the Arabs, in in order to revolt, in order to ally themselves with the British, they had they had been promised just a, a couple of little enclaves, modern-day Lebanon, modern-day southern Iraq. Virtually, the, the British promised uh, the Arabs independence of virtually the entire Middle East. Th- then they Im- immediately turned around and made a secret deal. The British made a secret deal with the French called the Sykes-Picot Agreement that, that really reneged on almost all the promises that had just been made to the Arabs. Lawrence was very aware of both of, the, of the, these conflicting promises. And I, th- I think what happened with Lawrence, the longer he spent in the field and the, the more he played the central role in enlisting Arabs to fight, again, for the cause of independence, but also knowing that, that the probability was at the end of the war they were going to be betrayed, the promises were, were going to be thrown out. 
I think it it caused him a, a, a really tremendous moral crisis. And in his in his war memoir, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he talks about how he felt uh, a fraud and a charlatan. And, I, and so I think it being in the field and seeing men fighting and die for a cause that he had, he was actively encouraging them to do so for, I, I think it, it really affected him very deeply. Do you think that might be partly why he sort of retreated from life, didn't he, in his later mm-hmm. years? Do you think that might have influence that change of his life? I do. I think um, uh, after the war, Lawrence went to the Paris Peace Conference uh, as a liaison to King Hussein's son, Faisal, uh, to represent Arab interests and to try to get the British government to live up to the promises that had been made to the, to the Arabs. He had some allies initially in the, in the British Foreign Office, uh, but he was gradually seen as an obstacle to having a final peace settlement made. To the point where he he was almost officially banned from any involvement in the Paris Peace Conference and um, and prevented from continuing his liaison role with uh, Faisal, so I think his disillusionment after the war uh, part of it was that he felt he had had a hand in this betrayal of of the promises made to the to the Arabs. But then on a more personal level, he kind of went a bit mad out in the battlefield. Um, towards the end of the war, he was. It was clear he was engaging in battles that they were almost suicidal in nature. Um, he went into battles where he uh, executed prisoners, ordered no prisoners to be taken. And it's clear in his post-war life that he he was suffering from what we'd refer to today as post-traumatic stress disorder. He had several bouts with depression, uh, contemplated suicide, and became more and more reclusive. Also changed his name, changed his name twice, and, and legally changed, changed it. So he became, I think he became a, a really kind of a sad and reclusive figure. And I think it was always haunted, both by the, on the intellectual level of the involvement in, in the uh, betrayal of the Arabs, but on an emotional level of just what the war had done to him. And for your biography of Lawrence, you've, you've taken a group approach, haven't you? You've focused on quite a few of the people that were around Lawrence at this time. Why did you decide to go down that road for the book? Lawrence is the primary character in the book. There's, I would say there's, there's a supporting cast of three other secondary characters. And in contemplating what I could write about Lawrence that was new, because there have been 70-some-odd biographies done on him, one thing that jumped out at me was that I went, I went back to the, the central riddle of his life, which I, th- I think is, in essence, is how did he do it? How did this 28-year-old Oxford scholar, without a single day of military training, how did that guy go off to Arabia and become this battlefield commander of a, of a rebel army? And I think part of the answer is that he, he was able to do it because no one was paying that much attention in the leadership. But certainly in the, from the British standpoint, the vast majority of the blood and treasure that was being expended was on the Western Front. This was in the midst of World War I. So if this rather eccentric guy could go off to Arabia and cause problems for the for the Turkish enemy, the Turks being allied with the Germans, then he, he was given tremendous freedom of movement and action to do so. And when I realized that about Lawrence, that and it was a little bit of a, a miniature epiphany about Lawrence, I thought, well, if that was true about the British, who were by far the biggest imperial players in the region at the time, then it must have been true about the other warring factions. So w- once I had that idea, I started looking around for, for other people um, and found an American who was the only American field intelligence officer, um, almost exactly Lawrence's age. He was one year older, a German counterintelligence officer and a a Jewish settler in Palestine. So it was this amazing moment where, because so much of the world's attention was focused elsewhere, and specifically on on the Western and the Eastern fronts, that these men with very modest resumes, but with a certain brilliance and a talent for treachery, um, 
were able to have an outsized, outsized effect on history. Lawrence, of course, being the, the one that the world remembers. And the other three men I write about, really very few people have heard of them. But, but again, we're, we're, had somewhat similar trajectories to Lawrence. And you mentioned earlier about there being a Jewish settler then. Clearly this period became also important because of the formation of the State of Israel eventually. A lot of That's that was right. decided in, in this First World War period. What was Lawrence's own view about the future of what was then Palestine? Well, in around about 1916, the, the, the Balfour Declaration, which was from the British Foreign Secretary Balfour, uh, um, and it very carefully worded that the British government, I can't remember the exact wording, but it would look with favor of an increased Jewish immigration into Palestine. But it was a very, a very carefully calibrated statement uh, designed to win over uh, the, the opinion of international Jewry, or, or at least of, of the Zionists, uh, people who had this idea, the Jews who had this idea of, of a return to to Palestine, uh, it designed to win them over to to the uh, to the war cause. When Lawrence first heard that the Balfour Declaration was in the works, um, he was aghast because he he just saw that the Jews and the and the, the resident Palestinian population were, were going to it meant war. But as time went on, he also realized it was a fait accompli. Certainly once the Balfour Declaration came out in November of 1917, there, there was no way to, to get the horse back in the barn. If, if Lawrence was anything, he was a born pragmatist. And so when, he, when the Balfour Declaration came out, he accepted it as a fait accompli and tried to use it to win further concessions from, from the British uh, government in the Arab cause. Now, Lawrence of Arabia today is, is still a very well-known name around the world. He's almost, I guess he is an iconic figure. Was that something that was around at the time, or did he become more famous posthumously? Lawrence was sort of discovered at two very specific times. Lowell Thomas, who was an American journalist journalist slash huckster, <laughs> discovered Lawrence right, right at the, the closing days of the war. And he turned Lawrence into a matinee idol. Uh, Lowell Thomas put on this, this kind of a moving picture show that played in London and then and, and proceeded to play all, all across Great Britain. And it was a massive hit. Uh, and with Lawrence as this this romantic figure in robes and leading the Arabs in a battle and you know going over sand dunes. They even had dancing girls in the Lowell Thomas show. And over a million uh, people in Britain came out to see it, including the King and Queen of England. So Lawrence, by 1919, had huge fame. And yet, it, it was a fame he really wanted to reject. And that's when he first changed his name and, and really went into hiding. And then the second time was, of course, the David, David Lean movie in 1962. And, you know, a movie that even today is considered one of the greatest films of all time. And cer- certainly for a worldwide audience, um, I think the movie made Lawrence a, a household name. And in his own day, how was Lawrence viewed by people back in Britain? What did they think of him? Initially, because of the Lowell Thomas show, he was, you know, the World War I was such a ghastly, awful war. And certainly the, it was very hard to tart up the Western Front, this grinding, awful war where men died in utter anonymity. And, and now you had this sort of very romantic figure that people could rally around and find some romanticism or some glamour out of out of this horrific catastrophe that had happened. So I think initially, in the popular view, he was viewed as this very romantic, dashing figure. The irony is that at the same time that the British public were learning of Lawrence in 1919, 1920, he was being seen by the British government as as the enemy within, as the, as the man who wouldn't let go of representing the Arab cause when 
the government just wanted to cut the knot and you know make the peace treaty with France. Together they would divide up the Middle East into their imperial spheres. So it's this great irony that I think among the pu- public he was seen as a as a matinee idol, while within the British government he was he was increasingly seen as almost a traitor within. So I suppose the British government can't have been too pleased that he suddenly had this big popular appeal behind him. No, that's right. And it goes to the peculiarities of Lawrence. He never tried to use that popularity to to really push his, his own agenda, which he probably could have. He really could have used it for his own political benefit. Instead, he just wanted to disappear, and he pretty effectively disappeared. And how important do you think his writings were to his later influence? I think a lot. Yeah, Seven Pillars and Wisdom, his war memoir has been translated in 70 languages, something like that, and it's still in print all around the world. His aspiration was that it was going to become or become known as, as one of the great works of Western literature. I, I don't think it achieved that level. But I do think that what makes the books still resonate is it was one of the first memoir where a man at war is really talking about just how how awful it is, and and there are there are passages in in uh, Seven Pillars that that read so much like a modern depiction of war, and this was this was very unusual at the time. This was this was still at a time, and, and it was part of the disjuncture that happened with World War One. Couldn't tart up that war to make it sound in any way romantic or glamorous, but really it was the, the British poets sort of captured that move away from the romanticism of war, but. As, as far as fiction writers or, or memoirists, uh, uh, Lawrence was one of the first to, to really talk about just how awful it was. Coming on to the, the present day, how do people in the Middle East nowadays view Lawrence? Is he seen as, as a champion of them or do they have sort of slightly more mixed feelings about him? They have mixed feelings about him. In certain countries, I think he's he's still remembered fondly. In other ones, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, the politics in those countries. I think a lot of people feel that he didn't really work for the Arab cause, that he was a, a kind of a British agent. And they don't distinguish between him and the, the British Empire coming in and imposing their their will and, and, and the, the betrayal of, of, of the Arabs at the time. On a more personal level, I think that probably in most of the Middle East and most of the Arab world, they're a bit tired of hearing about him. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Arab revolt is their creation story. And the idea that, um, you know, certainly it comes across in the movie that there always has to be this white European at center stage, I, I think they find galling, and, and understandably so. Um, but it, it, but the reality is he really did play a crucial and central role in helping bring the Arab re- revolt to fruition. And I suppose, actually, we're living in a time when, again, the Middle East is in quite a state of flux. Do you see many parallels between today and, and Lawrence's own time? Uh, yes, um, I think that what we're seeing in the Middle East today is almost exactly what Lawrence was was war- uh, warning about back in at, at the end of the war in 1918-1919. He saw disaster coming if the the Western empires and again the victors were France and Britain if they tried to impose their colonial will on the region, and you know his voice was lost. And instead, they they divided up exactly the way they wanted to in, in this very much of a colonial mindset. And the whole thing blew up within a year. Um, by 1920, the entire Middle East was was aflame against both British and French um, presence. But what happened, all that sort of got patched over, and these artificial countries that, that were established at that time lasted for about 95 years. They lasted till the Arab Spring. And now what you're seeing is is 
the, these artificial creations all kind of falling apart. I mean, Iraq today is essentially three countries. Libya is three countries. And both those countries, Iraq and Libya, are divided up very much along the lines that the, 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 the religious and ethnic lines that existed um, that the Ottomans t- took into account and, and kept as separate districts. Um, and the whole Ottoman system was to give local groups a, a great deal of autonomy. When the British and French came in, they, they pushed these people together and, and created these artificial states. And, I, and this was something that Lawrence was very aware of and, and was warning against. Really what, what I think we're seeing across the Middle East now is a reversion back to the way the region looked under the Ottomans. So it actually wouldn't be too unfamiliar to Lawrence if he were alive today. He'd... No, and, and I think that if Lawrence, if Lawrence were alive today, and I think he would say, I told you so. <laughs> I, I, I yeah. mean, this it, it's um, and and he he wasn't alone. There were a few other people who who knew the region well, yeah. who were also warning about this. And I find parallels between what Lawrence was warning the British against, as opposed to what you know a few people who knew Iraq were warning the Americans uh, against in two thousand three, um, you know, prior to the American invasion of Iraq. Um, you know, there was a few voices out there saying this is a really complicated. Society and these people are not going to all rush to the street and throw roses at, at American soldiers as liberators. There's these very deep ethnic and, and religious fault lines that run through Iraq, and things are going to start falling apart. And the, and those voices, just like Lawrence's, were lost or ignored, and disaster came. So we're now um, talking all the time about the First World War because of the, the centenary of that. How do you think Lawrence should fit into those kind of centenary commemorations? And- well, do, you, do you think he will fit in? Will he be overshadowed by the, the Western Front and that kind of thing? I, I, I think to a degree. I mean, the, the Middle Eastern Front of the war has always been, certainly among for British and French, has always yeah. been off to the side in the Western Front being at the center. And for good reason. Both those countries lost over a million men and the vast majority of them on the Western Front. You know, the ultimate irony of that, though, is that even as the war was going on, and, you know, as I said, that Lawrence had this freedom of movement because no one really cared that much. No one 100 years ago could have imagined that the Middle East was going to become the strategic heart of the world, the most vital corner of the world. And it's, it's quite amazing if you go back to World War I and, and you look at, you know, the, not just the blood and treasure that was expended, but even the, the diplomatic deliberations that went on. At the Paris Peace Conference, for every hour that was spent talking about what was going to happen in the Middle East, there were a hundred hours spent talking about what was going to happen in Belgium, say. So it's one of those, those quirks of history that everyone's attention was, was kind of looking in the wrong direction. So how do you think they should be remembering Lawrence then as we come on to a hundred years since his, his kind of prime moment? You know, he still has this resonance, and I, and I think people see him as, the, as this kind of a Shakespearean tragic figure of a of very peculiar man, a flawed man, but who tried to do the right thing and, and was kind of swallowed up by the machinery, you know, greater forces at work, but also as, as a man who was, who was putting out the warning of what was coming if you didn't start listening. He, he, he saw the end of the colonial and imperial age, and, and there were a few people at the time that did. And, of course, these voices were just overlooked, and so calamity, calamity followed. That was Scott Anderson. Scott's book, Lawrence in Arabia, War, Deceit, Imperial Folly and the Making of the Modern Middle East, 
is out now, published by Atlantic in the UK and Doubleday in the US. We ran a review of the book in our April edition, which is on sale now. Also in this month's magazine, Professor Ian Kershaw questions why Adolf Hitler fascinates us more than other historical monsters. Meanwhile, we're exploring the mysteries of Shakespeare's life, challenging myths about Pocahontas, and discovering how beans were once thought to be a powerful aphrodisiac. Look out for our April issue in all good newsagents and in our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. An 18th century chastity belt and phallic Roman amulets are to be used to enrich sex education for secondary school pupils. In an attempt to help students discuss challenging topics, researchers from the University of Exeter are to launch a new taster course for schools that teaches sex education through the examination and discussion of ancient artefacts. The Sex and History Project will see youngsters aged between 14 and 19 discuss illustrations of objects including an ivory copulating couple and a 19th century carving of a clamshell. The items, from the collection of Sir Henry Wellcome, have been stored for decades in the vaults of the Science Museum at Blythe House and have never been on public display. You can read more about this story at historyextra.com. In other news, a rare Ming-era cup has sold at auction in Hong Kong for a record-breaking $36 million. The porcelain cup, decorated with a painting of a rooster, hen and chicks, was made in the late 15th century. It was bought on Tuesday by a multi-millionaire art collector from Shanghai. The 500-year-old cup, which measures just 3.1 inches in diameter, is reportedly one of only 17 in the world. 
Meanwhile, new research suggests that Offa's Dyke, a massive earthwork that roughly follows the modern border between England and Wales, was actually constructed at least a century before the reign of the king whose name it takes. Traditionally considered to have been built during the reign of King Offa, who was king of Mercia, the region which covered the Midlands from 757 until 796, new research suggests that it was actually constructed no later than the middle of the 7th century. According to the Telegraph, the new study used radiocarbon dating on part of the structure. Experts have described it as a tremendously exciting discovery. Thanks for that, Emma, and please visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Biographies of Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia, the four daughters of Nicholas II of Russia and his wife Alexandra, are often overshadowed by their assassination by Bolshevik forces in 1918. Helen Rappaport's new book, however, draws upon letters and diaries kept by the Romanov sisters during their childhood and teenage years to offer an intimate portrait of the family's domestic life. Our book's editor, Matt Elton, met up with Helen at her home in Dorset, and she started by explaining the background to the Romanov story. The parents of the four Romanov sisters were, of course, Nicholas, the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, and his German-born wife, Alexandra of Hesse. And it was, um, in the sort of royal dynastic scheme of things, a a fortunate marriage in that they married for love. It wasn't dynastic expediency. They married for love, and they really just wanted to be living in each other's pockets and have pay happy families. And I think if if Nicholas could have walked away from the throne and done that, he would have done it, Mm. actually. But, of course, um, there were enormous pressures on her as the empress, as the Tsaritsa, from the moment she married Nicholas to produce a son and heir. I mean, that was her basic function, always is the function of royal brides, you know, the heir and the spare. Alexandra had four daughters between 1895 and 1901, yes, in the space of six years, and in this desperate, desperate desire to have a son. And I think they practically given up hope, and they had reached the point where not only was the succession crisis brewing, in Russia because of the, they didn't have the law of primogeniture there, it was Salic law, so every male, possible male heir had to be exhausted before any woman could come to the throne. Um, and it was getting very desperate, but worse than that was the nasty and really quite vicious talk about Alexandra as being cursed, as having brought a curse on the family, that the Romanos were doomed and that Nicholas should divorce her. How did this, um this external pressure and the pressure for a male uh, child. How did this shape her personality? Well, it, first of all, it pushed her in the direction of a succession of quacks, faith healers, seers, anyone who would offer some kind of weird uh, peasant remedy, all kinds of bizarre advice was offered to her. And she was so, so desperate for that boy that she laid herself open to almost uh, dabbling with occult practice and and basically um, welcoming through her door um, one or two very dubious people, notably a man called Maitre Philippe, who came promising he could absolutely make sure that their next boy, their next child was a boy. And so she, I think Nicholas got dragged in. Okay. Because I think fundamentally Alexandra was pretty much a latent hysteric. She was highly neurotic. 
and the more desperate she became, the more she clutched at illogical, irrational practice, in this, this desperation to have a son. Mm. Because she saw their mission, her and Nicholas's mission, to pass on the Russian throne intact to a son and heir, and, and, and not just a, not in any way a diluted kind of autocracy, a very entrenched, very firm, divine right of kings kind of autocracy. So focusing obviously on this domestic uh, setup, with all these external pressures, um, do we get a sense in the early years of these sisters' lives um, what, their, what their family life was like? What was their relationship in the early years with their parents? Right from the very beginning, despite all the talk abroad and in Russia, oh, what a dreadful disappointment, oh, they've had another girl, they loved their daughters. They doted on their daughters and they never, ever expressed any kind of disappointment about them. Nicholas in particular was a totally hands-on father, quite um, against the mould of your average Edwardian father. He really did spend time with his children. He played with them, he walked with them, he read to them, he went riding with them. If he could find a spare minute in the day, he engaged with his family. And their life, that life that they shared with their children was all about the family, about love and support, and um, also very much bolstered by their Christian faith. So right from day one, those children were brought up in a very loving family environment. They weren't consigned to the nursery like many aristocratic or royal princes and princesses, you know, just brought down for tea and yeah. off again. You know, the parents were very closely involved with their children, so much so that after a couple of failed attempts at having governesses for the girls, Alexandra took it over herself. That's amazing, yeah. Because she wanted control. Mm. She was very controlling over her daughters and obsessively so, of course, about her son, the haemophiliac. So what the girls grew up with was an incredible... It was an incredibly, incredibly strong, loving sense of family and of, of loyalty to the family, of duty and care. And um, they kept that to the very bitter end. And I think of all the things that touched me writing the story, it is that sense of love. And it's why I chose that as the epigraph of my book. Yes. Yes. Faith, hope, and love. Yes. That is the abs I know it might even sound like a corny kind of quote. And I agonised about it and I said, no, for me that absolutely encapsulate, encapsulates what those children, what those girls were brought up with. They were brought up in the Christian faith of being loving, showing sympathy and kindness to others. Do as you would be done by. That's the thing. The amazing thing about this book, among other things, is how strongly we get a sense of these personalities mm. of these four individuals. Uh, how early on do we get a sense of their characters? Well, of course, the world, this is the tragedy. The world outside knew nothing of these four girls beyond the pretty official portraits, the photographs that were circulated as postcards of four lovely smiling girls in big hats and white frocks. And it was bland. It was a collective kind of docile, dutiful image. And people had no comprehension, no, no sense at all of... Four very, very different and contrasting personalities. And that is what is so interesting about the girls, mm. that they were so different. But no one ever saw that, of course, except very close friends of the family and 
trusted members of the entourage. Mm. So, I mean, being the oldest, um, did um, that add any pressure um, to yeah. being the firstborn? Do you think? Olga, the eldest, the onus was always in, on her, and her mother placed it rather unfairly at times, I think, to set an example. Mm. And, to, and I, at one point later on, you know, she was slightly bullied by her mother to almost try and discipline her very, very undisciplined and highly strong brother. And Olga, I think, began to kick over the traces about this as she got older in her teenage years. And I think of all the children, of all the sisters, she suffered emotionally more than the others. She was more volatile. And when she entered her sort of hormonal phase, she became quite grumpy and difficult. And Alexandra in the war years, of course, was complaining to Nicholas how argumentative and she was, and she was just being a not fairly normal young woman. Yes, yeah. Um, so Olga, I, you know, because of the burden of being the eldest, naturally had to deal with a heightened sense of responsibility mm. of setting an example. Um, has, has the next sister, Tatiana, was the great beauty of the family. She had the most extraordinarily lovely svelte figure and tipped up eyes and almost slightly asiatic look but she was extremely reserved like her mother so much so that people thought she was rather haughty she wasn't she just was intensely private person and for me she remains something of a beautiful enigma really okay although i think of all the girls researching their story she was the one who shone through to me in the end and i hadn't taken a lot of notice of tatiana to be honest until I did the research in detail, and suddenly you see this extraordinary, composed, dedicated young woman as a nurse in the war years. She was undoubtedly a highly gifted nurse. Mm. She, she was doing theatre nursing, assisting in operations, you know, administering the ether. She could have gone on if she'd not been a royal princess yeah. and been a pioneer nurse, undoubtedly, or even maybe have trained as a doctor. And she shines through with this incredible stoicism, always uncomplaining, always getting on with the work in hand, doing her hospital duties without complaint at a time when poor Olga collapses through a combination of physical exhaustion because she wasn't very well. And also mentally she couldn't take the trauma of their nursing work. And it, it wasn't just a matter of mopping the fever brow by the bedside or reading the odd book. You know, some royal nurses just tiptoed around the perimeter. They, right from the beginning, when they started their Red Cross training, were in the operating theatre, watching amputations, seeing men horribly disfigured and wounded. So Olga, because of her sensible, sensitive, sensitive nature, I think that affected her much more, whether Tatiana was much more self-controlled. And so they were quite wonderful in the terms of their dedication to the war effort, and they're admirable for that, I think. Heading back in time to the <coughs> sense of the sisters being paired up, yeah. um, what do we learn about the younger, the younger pair? Well, this is another way in which... Oh, whether by accident or design, Alexandra, in a way, um, anonymised her daughters by referring them to the big, as the big pair and the little pair. So Olga Tatiana, there was a natural split with the elder two. And then Maria and Anastasia were the little pair. And it kind of 
destroys a bit of the personality of the girls and they in turn took it a step further by sometimes in letters or when mentioning each other to other people refer to themselves as Otmar, O-T-M-A, the, the initial letters of their names. But Maria and Anastasia again were very different contrasting personalities. I think in a way Maria suffered a little bit from being the middle child. And at times got a little bit pushed out because the older two tended to stick together more. And although she was closer in age to Anastasia, who was extremely energetic and demanding and wild and undisciplined and very manipulative, and Maria being very soft and gentle and docile suffered at Anastasia's hands. And I found an interesting comment from Tatiana saying how they used to fight like cat and dog. Maria Anastasia and Anastasia um, complaints made about her for pulling and hair and scratching and kicking so she's not quite the pretty pretty little <laughs> Romanov sister one might imagine she could be really quite spiteful she was wild she was um, a bit of a free spirit but as the years went on in a way Maria came slightly adrift of that relationship and it became a more sense of Anastasia playing with Alexei so um Maria, I suppose, of all the four sisters, is the least controversial, but certainly not the least interesting. She was an incredibly long-suffering, stoical, devoted, loved children. She had a wonderfully gentle, earthy kind of Mother Earth personality. But she did, I suppose, within the little pair, get completely overshadowed by Anastasia. Such a strange decision to pair your children off when there's four of them. I don't. I know strange. it's a shame, and this awful thing of, in a way, that persisted with Alexandra right through, right through to the end, really, in the war years when she's writing all these letters to Nicholas. She kind of infantilizes her children. She's still referring to Alexei as baby when he's thirteen, and she she talks about her girlies. Yeah. Well, by then Olga's over twenty. And, um, you know, they're not girlies anymore, they're young women. And I don't know, it's as though she won't accept that sooner or later they've got to be introduced to the outside world. Yeah. Uh, illness was a, was, a, yeah. was a theme. To what extent did their mother and brother's illness affect the shape of their childhood and their young adolescence? Well, the tragic thing about those girls, and there's many <clears throat> tragic angles to their story, but another one that really came through to me researching the book was that effectively those girls lived their entire lives in the shadow of sickness because first of all Alexandra by the time she produced a fifth child inside 10 years plus uh, a phantom pregnancy and at least one miscarriage was a physical wreck she was a physical and an emotional wreck she had never been a well woman even before she married Nicholas her grandmother Queen Victoria sent her for a cure at Harrogate because she had suffered from in her teens from agonizing sciatica she suffered from a whole catalogue of things you know facial neuralgia migraines in sleeplessness so those girls right from a, a very tiny age were aware of mother being indisposed mama's lying down mama's got a headache mama's not feeling well oh dear mama didn't come to lunch again or they go to some ceremony and mother retires to lie down now some of it has been suggested is was psychosomatic or perhaps it was but the one thing that really struck home to me when i wrote the book was how 
actually genuinely chronically sick their mother was. Mm. So what you have, and then they have their incredibly precious brother born, who is discovered to have haemophilia, a life-threatening condition where one bang or serious fall or knock could provoke uncontrollable hemorrhage. So they then have the double burden of not only watching out for their mother, but cocooning and protecting their brother and keeping an eye on him. And especially when their mother's indisposed, you know, they're having to keep an eye on Alexei. So effectively, those girls spent their entire lives as carers. Mm -hmm. That's why... So they saw really so little of the world outside because of the nature of their mother's chronic illness and their brother's very generally fragile state. There were times when he was quite robust and well, but it never lasted for very long. No. So it was all encompassing. This internal world they lived in was, was so all encompassing. Do we get a sense of how they viewed the outside world? Well, this is the extraordinary thing. I found in the most telling comment, which in a sentence actually encapsulated the whole thing. During the war years, um, as I said, the older two sisters trained as nurses, but the younger two girls weren't old enough to train, but they did hospital visiting. And eventually they were given their own little hospital near the Alexander Palace, named after them, which was their little domain, because they got a bit, felt a bit left out that Olga and Tatiana were down in the big city hospital being serious <laughs> nurses. So anyway... Um, they did a lot of um, hospital visiting and one thing, a wonderful memoir I found of one of the wounded officers who was brought to hospital um, actually pinpointed it. He said whenever the girls came to visit and often they brought Alexei when he was well, they constantly questioned the wounded soldiers and asked them to tell them about the outside life and that's what it called the outside life. It, it, it was as though they perceived themselves not being in a cage, although one could say, of course, they lived in a gilded cage, but they, they were in this kind of hermetically sealed little world that their mother controlled very closely. And they knew there was this wonderful world outside. Yeah. And they, during the war years, of course, they began catching glimpses of it, if only through seeing and meeting these wounded soldiers who were brought to the hospitals. And there was always, whenever the, the girls met young women of their own age socially, occasionally, like Rasputin's daughters, they got to know them. Uh, the first thing they do is question them about, oh, what parties, what dances did you go? What frock did you wear? Did you go to the theatre? And you get the sense almost these poor girls are being rather deprived. As they kind of grew into young women, um, what figures, if any, outside of the family do you feel contributed most to their development? None. Um, yeah. Really, the, the, when you look at it by about, let's say, 1912, the people in their lives are mother, father, Rasputin, Auntie Olga, who they loved and adored. They were fond of Aunt Zania as Nicholas's other sisters. They hardly saw their grandmother, the Dowager Empress. I don't think they were particularly close to her. But the people they most gravitated to tended to be the officers in the entourage, particularly the Tsar's personal bodyguard, the Cossack escort, and officers and men of the royal, of the imperial yacht, the Standard. Mm. And it's weird. So you see these young teenage girls growing up surrounded by adults and a few ladies-in-waiting. There were two or three ladies-in-waiting they loved and trusted. But you don't see them having really any association with young 
women, young men of their class, of the aristocracy, because Alexandra despised the Russian aristocracy and thought they were pernicious. So, you know, whenever they had a problem, they could only turn to adults mm. and not their friends, not re- or, or each other, mm. probably more each other. Yeah, I mean, given this, this strange setup, what hopes and aspirations did they have for their futures? I think their aspirations were very simple, to get married and have children and be happy. Mm. But none of them, we don't know an awful lot, because they were trained by their mother to be very circumspect, not to show their feelings. Even in their diaries, they don't really say much about what they feel. I don't think they had any great aspirations beyond just being happy and having a quality family life that their parents had given them. So you don't see them longing for things. Just love and human society, I think that's all they really wanted. And, you know, being able to go to the odd ball or the theatre or the opera. But no, their needs, they were really from childhood, they were sufficient unto each other. Always were. Always able to amuse each other, look after each other, because they lived in a bubble for a lot of the time. Mm. At what point did you decide to end the book? And, and why did you decide to end it at that point? Oh, I agonised about the end of the book for obvious reasons, because I'd written a Katrinberg, which is a, a chapter a day for, for each day of those last 14 days, right up to the murders, and a detailed forensic description of how they were murdered and how the bodies were disposed of and all the ghastly black comedy of how basically the, Bolsh- uh, the, the Bolsheviks cocked it up and made a complete mess of it. Uh, and so I knew I couldn't recount all that again. And, and almost emotionally, I didn't feel I could go through a blow-by-blow account of the murders again. It was such a hard part of the book to write. I knew I had to end it differently and hope that my readers would understand, and I put a note in the front, that firstly, because of what the other book I'd written, I had to end it um, at the point where, you know, they go down the cellar steps, but I don't go any further than that, because I didn't want to repeat myself. And also because I do feel very passionately, uh, the Katrinberg is a book I'm proud of, and that is a standalone title, and I want it to remain so. What is the major impression or misapprehension about the sisters that you'd like this book to kind of reverse? Well, I I think, as I said at the outset, I don't want people to think they were just four bland little girls in pretty frocks who had nothing, no brains, no personalities, and were totally without interest. They had four very vibrant and fascinating personalities. And also, I just think that their sense of devotion to the family and their very sick mother and brother is exemplary. And the extraordinary thing at the end of the book is you get a great whether you're religious or not, you do get a very powerful sense of their Christian belief, their faith that held that family together, held the girls together. So I just want people to see that they were four lovely young women on the brink of of adulthood and there was life and they longed to grab it and it was snatched from them. Um, In terms of your research, what sources did you use and are, are, are there any particular diary entries or letters or other sources that stand out for you? Ah, oh, well, the sources I have to kind of keep slightly close to my chest. Um, I searched very long and hard. The trouble with the girls' um, personal diaries and letters is that they destroyed a lot of their diaries, as Alexandra did when they left the Alexander Palace and went to Tobolsk. 
their letters are scattered, some are still in private hands, many of course have just disappeared or were destroyed. And you have to search for them in many different places and it's all very fragmentary. I searched very, very, very hard to find new letters and I, by great good fortune, a combination of great good fortune and sheer hard work, I uncovered 30 unknown letters written by Anastasia from Tobolsk when she was a captive from, from the Alexander Palace in Tobolsk, um, which is interesting because during that period of captivity, we had the least, till then, we had the least number of letters written by her. And I was very thrilled and proud of that. What was the thing that surprised you most during the course of your research? I think, I, I wouldn't use the word surprise. I think what was revealing for me as a historian and thinking I knew that family quite well, having worked on them before, was how I changed my perception of Alexandra. Because I don't think I've ever encountered a more tormented woman in history. Uh, she was such a physical and emotional wreck by the war years. So I think I learned to show some compassion for her. She deserves compassion. She also, I know, in some respects has been fairly vilified, but you can't heap all the blame for what was wrong with Russia on her. So I, I modified my views of her, but I think in the end, it was just wonderful to be able to shine a light on those girls and see them all as rounded human beings. And particularly Tatiana, who'd always been such an enigma to me. Reading her diaries and letters and the accounts of her as a nurse, at Sarsko-Silla during the war years was a revelation because there was an extraordinarily dedicated and gifted young woman who could have made a major contribution in some way. And I think Tatiana gets a little bit washed over because she looked so beautiful and she was so very, very reserved and never showed her feelings. So she's harder to get to, whereas Anastasia is the obvious. Mm one that everyone goes for. Interestingly, I think, probably interestingly, the one I least, that I least empathised with was her. Okay. And she's the most mythologised. Mm. If you could ask any one of them a question, what would you ask them? What I really, really most want to know, and there's so much speculation about this, is how aware they were of how desperate their situation was at the end. Did they think it was the end? I have, seen, have found evidence, and I use it in the book, that they were all pretty aware that they were going to die and that it, the game was up. I think Olga certainly was, but I'd like to know. I'd like to know whether they clung to hope right to the very last minute or whether... Because you get a sense of them being reconciled at the party of House in Ekaterinburg, of them being reconciled to God and their faith and to whatever life will bring to them. They were very fatalistic like their parents. I'd like to know how aware they really were of this awful great shadow approaching. That was Helen Rappaport. Four Sisters, The Lost Lives of the Romanov Grand Duchesses is out now published by Macmillan and it's also available in the US as a Kindle title. Well, that's almost all for this week. As always, do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out some of your messages in future episodes. A few weeks ago, we asked for feedback about our theme tune after listener Andrew Watts got in touch to say that he wasn't a big fan of it. 
Well, we've had quite a few emails, and so far it seems Andrew is in the minority. Rob Mousley from South Africa has written in to say, I actually like the theme music. It's distinctive and has pleasant connotations. The History Extra podcast. While Michael Roman writes, Please, please, please don't change the theme music. I consider it the perfect way to ground my mind for your podcast's tone, pace, gravitas, and, during the Christmas quiz, your collective sense of humour. After listening to it as many times as I have for these many years, it's now an institution. Your podcast is one of the most informative and unique sources of information in my little world. Keep it up. Well, thanks for all of your feedback, and do please continue to let us know your views about the podcast, positive or negative. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on social media, on facebook.com forward slash history extra, or Twitter at History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, where we've got lots of history news, features, image galleries, quizzes, and a whole lot more. Next week, we'll be taking a trip aboard a Tudor ship with Miranda Kaufman, while Selena Todd will be discussing the history of the working classes. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Dorset and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.